we going to get this thing started? Are we going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do it. You know why we're going to do it? Because this, 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 That's a downy woodpecker, one of the most common woodpeckers in the United States. A woodpecker can peck 20 times per second. And they create up to 1,500 Gs of force. For comparison, astronauts, as they're taking off on the space shuttle, they feel just 3 Gs of force. A football tackle... Well, that can be over 100 Gs. My name's Dr. Mel Herbert. And I'm Dr. Jess Mason. And I'm Mr. Dave Mason, the second <laughs> senior. Thank you very much. You're not the second. <laughs> well, my grandfather was David Mason, so I'm oh, kind of. I'm wrong. Was he a woodpecker? No, he wasn't. He was Russian. <laughs> yeah, so you know what? I just read one of these stories on woodpeckers and how they don't get concussions trying to figure out with all the woodpeckering that the birds do how come they're just not dropping out of the sky with tons of brain damage well it turns out dave i'm actually a woodpecker expert i know it's hard to believe but i know everything about woodpeckers turns out that their entire anatomy is based around the fact that they bash their heads against uh, trees all day and so they've evolved to have these really pliable beaks and their skulls are made up of this really spongy bone and all of this comes together so that they really absorb a lot of shock so that their poor little woodpecker brain doesn't get concussion every time they smash this tree so basically you're saying through evolution their skulls have turned into little bird helmets yes but humans do not have little helmets no and really a human would suffer a concussion and probably over the long term would develop dementia so in this episode we're going to be talking about concussions what are they and why are they so bad particularly when you have more than one we're going to be interviewing a series of experts and also patients, football players, and even a 10-year-old ER patient. With what we now know about concussions, well, it's going to turn the sporting world on its head, from Little League to the pros. Dave, yeah. question. Mm -hmm. As the non-doctor here, are you ready? Yep. What is a concussion? Yeah, I did my homework. Merriam-Webster okay, defines concussion as... An injury to the brain that is caused by something hitting the head very hard, period. And it comes from the Latin word for shake. That's good. I like that definition. Not, not like a milkshake, but like shaking somebody. Like a Polaroid picture. Yeah. Okay. Got it. It's good. It's a good <laughs> definition, but we're going to add to it and make it more of a medical definition. And oh. in order to do that, we are going to introduce a third ER doctor, Stuart Swadron. But not just any third ER doctor. This is Professor Stuart Swadron from the Keck School of Medicine. And Stuart is an internationally known educator. He's recognized for lots of things, but mostly because he's ridiculously smart. So smart, in fact, you know what his nickname is? Captain Cortex. Yeah. Captain Cortex. I hope he's got a theme song. Does he have a theme song? Mm, we're currently working on a theme song <laughs> nice. and a deal with Marvel Comics. Nice. <laughs> he was also my mentor in med school, by the way. Really? Yeah, he's a good guy. And that's why you do podcasting instead of seeing patients, is it? <laughs> I see patients. Oh, no. <laughs> I will prove you're, it to you in this episode doctor. that I see patients. <laughs> She's a real doctor. Ladies and gentlemen, Captain Cortex himself. It's Dr. Stewart. A concussion is really just another way of saying mild head injury, or as we say in the business, traumatic brain injury, TBI. 
Usually this is when the head is hit or struck directly, but it could be when it's getting whipped around inside the skull, as the case, say, for example, in a roller coaster or in a car accident. Clinically, what we see is some sort of evidence that the brain has transiently stopped working. Most commonly, this is a loss of consciousness because this is a global injury of the whole brain. And so it is common for them to lose consciousness, but it doesn't have to be. And then following this initial event, the patient often has ongoing symptoms that hopefully fade over the next few hours and days and weeks, but they can be quite debilitating. Yeah, so 10 years ago, was anyone even talking about concussions? I mean, today you can't even turn on the news or even even in the movies without hearing about head injuries and high school football games and just concussions in general. It's everywhere. Exactly. And there was a recent movie about this with Will Smith called Concussion. Oh, it's a good name for a movie about concussions. (laughs) They really nailed it. I found a disease that no one has ever seen. Repetitive head trauma chokes the brain. The NFL does not want to talk to you. You turned on the lights and gave their biggest boogeyman a name. You're going to war with a corporation that owns a day of the week. No proof was presented today because there simply isn't any. They have to listen to us. This is bigger than they are. So that movie is actually based on a true story of this Nigerian-American physician and forensic pathologist and neuropathologist, so he really knows about brains, by the name of Bennett Umulu, not Will Smith. Will Smith is the actor, Bennett Umulu is the genius that came up with this diagnosis. He was actually one of the first people to publish the findings of chronic traumatic encephalopathy in American football players while he was working at Allegheny County Coroner's Office in Pittsburgh and got himself into lots of trouble with a certain large football group. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy is something that refers to the cumulative effects of many, many concussions over years. So you have, say, this football player, that's a very common victim of this uh, syndrome, and they just keep getting battered in the head. And over time, those people have changes in their brain cells very much like patients with Alzheimer's, with dementia. You know, when we look in the cells, we see abnormal proteins accumulating, the brain is shrinking. And again, this is not completely understood in terms of how this is happening, but it really does seem that repeated concussions will result in many patients in some sort of a chronic dementia. I should just say as an aside, when we're talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy and concussions. Concussions is when you get symptomatic. We're going to talk more about it in just a second, but it might be true that just being hit on the head without having clinical symptoms might also produce this syndrome, but we don't know yet. So chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the worst case scenario for long-term damage. And so far, many of the studies have been done in NFL players, but there's also been some work in soccer players and even in Australian football. Wait, so what's the difference between soccer and Australian football? It is very complicated. I can't explain it, but basically uh, it's totally different. Okay, that's a good explanation. I'll keep my eye out for it. (laughs) Crystal clear. It's Okay, Australian rules football is a cross between soccer, American football, Gaelic football, uh, being a woodpecker, uh, wearing really short shorts, going back in time into the 1970s, having long socks. It's complicated. It sounds super fun. I have to look this up now. I'm so curious what the ball looks like. Really short shorts. It's weird. It's weird. Oh, and it's like a football, but it's yellow or red. (laughs) It's very different. And Jacobs' kick needs to be precise, and it is. Goldstone. In the NFL, who decides when it's safe for a player to go back in the game? Do they need 
time to heal or are they just no they just can't be okay after they get their head knocked so my name is tom waters i'm an emergency medicine physician here at the cleveland clinic and i also am the one of the medical team physicians for the cleveland indians and a former uh, medical team physician for the cleveland browns so during a game, if a player is injured, the team physician assesses them for signs and symptoms of a concussion. One thing I would say is that you really just got to listen to your gut. If you think a player may be concussed, chances are they probably are. And you kind of use your overall gestalt. If they don't look right, and if your suspicion is raised because of that, then you really need to go ahead and take the next step and put them through the SCAT-3. SCAT-3 is the Sport Concussion Assessment Tool. So SCAT-3 is a compressed neuropsych test that assesses various different functions from cognitive to memory to balance. To do it properly, it takes anywhere from 5 to 10, maybe 12 minutes. So it's not something you technically do on the sideline. It's something that's best performed off the sideline in the locker room. We asked Dr. Waters how long a player has to wait before they're safe to return to competition. When a patient has a concussion... First thing is, okay, they have symptoms. As long as they're symptomatic, you're going to kind of just continue to rest them and wait until they're asymptomatic at rest before you can then allow them to start thinking about return to play. So how this works is once you've been diagnosed with a concussion, then you have to have graded physical activity. So you've got to be completely symptom-free depending on uh, which criteria you use. And then you get back to doing some exercise. First you start walking and then you start running and then you can start doing graded increase in activity. But at any time, at any time during uh, that return to play, if you develop symptoms, then you have to go right back to the beginning and start again. Now, the problem with this is that a lot of these symptoms are player reported. And if the player really wants to get back into the game and they want to go back and play their sport, one of the concerns that a lot of physicians have is that they're getting under-reporting. So the player is starting to do their physical activity, but they're getting some headaches, but they don't tell you because they really want to go back and play the game the next time. But it is what it is. If players knew how serious concussions were, maybe they wouldn't be so uh, quick to under-report their symptoms. Okay, so then can a player hide a concussion from a physician? I think that's the purpose of the SCAT-3, is to try to make mm. it a more objective test. Because there's only so much you can hide. You can hide pain, for example, if you're having a headache. But if someone does a balance test or a finger-to-nose test, that's much more objective and it would be harder to hide. So I think there's elements built into that to try to screen out for people who are maybe trying to downplay their symptoms. Yeah, it's the, you're right. It's the, it's the headaches that's the biggest thing that they can hide. So they start to return to play. They start to exercise. They're getting headaches, pounding headaches. And then the doctor says, do you have a headache? No, I'm fine, Doc, I'm fine. There's no real way to test that. I think the attitude that players have towards concussions is also starting to change as people are becoming more aware because the way that we assess and treat concussions has changed so much in the last decade. My name is Steve Yates. I'm a master trainer at LA Fitness and I'm a former collegiate football player. That's Stephen Yates, my personal trainer. He played football in college uh, about 10 years ago. Right, and that was before concussions were as widely recognized as a serious problem and before players were actually pulled out of the game for a formal assessment. At the time, I didn't know that was a concussion. We literally called it getting your bell rung. Have you ever wondered what it would feel like to get tackled by somebody, say, I don't know, six foot four, 240 pounds, running into you at full speed? He got lower than me to where in these days, back before 2000, 
you were allowed to lead with your head. So he got lower than me, caught me in my chin strap. Next thing I know, I'm on the ground, hearing the coach yell, back on the line, but I'm at this point a zombie. I literally am following verbatim directions. But at that point, the damage had been done. And I get up and I'm like, where am I at? Is it my own offense or am I on defense? At that time, there were actually techniques to try to inflict a concussion on another player. Leading with your crown, meaning the top of your helmet, to the ear hole of your opponent. Catching them from the side, especially me being a safety, moving lateral, you would think it was one of the best hits in that time. You could literally make somebody do a cartwheel because they don't see you, they can't brace. And they wouldn't even throw a flag on it. It was totally okay. It was totally part of the game. They call it a crackback. And so uh, how did Steven react to getting his uh, bell rung, as it were? Get up, man up, get right back in there. You know, especially if you're needed, especially if you don't lose your position, especially if you know colleges are looking at you and this is an important game. So much weighs into this to where you won't speak up. As medicine has started to gain a better understanding of concussions, we've started to see a change in the culture of sports and even in the rules of the game. The rule change, uh, the way they tackle nowadays, in that sense is better. You know, it's not called a good hit anymore. You don't get a slap on the back for it anymore. And like Dr. Waters mentioned, the team docs are watching really closely for the signs of a concussion. When I'm viewing a game and I can see a hit, they're usually on top of it. Like, they'll pull the person out even though the person isn't ready to come out, you know. And then they might put them back in after they go through their testing. So in that sense, it looks safer. But, like I said, we have bigger, faster, all positions, you know. So it's only so much you can do, I think. Some sports have higher rates of concussions than other sports. And actually, football has more concussions than any other high school sport but there are many different ways to get a concussion. My name is Maureen Nagel. My son's name is Mason Nagel, and he's 10 years old. I recently saw Maureen and her son Mason in the emergency department. He was playing with some of the kids in his class. They were just shooting around, playing a basketball game, totally informal, and he had fell backwards. And at that point, his head had hit the gym floor. Um, I was kind of like, when I slipped, I was kind of sliding, and then my head just fell back. And he has since told me that it felt like he was breaking bricks with his head. I don't know if I blacked out. Um, I asked my friends, and they said no. So I think I just got up and went and sat down. The CDC estimates that there are 3.8 million sports-related traumatic brain injuries per year. And it's something that I see in the ER all the time. His first symptom, I would say, would be he had like balance issues. He wasn't very steady on his feet from the first time that he fell. The other symptom, which came a little bit later, was a headache. He started complaining of a headache, very lethargic, extremely tired. I got home and then my head, I got a headache after a while. I couldn't really see out of my one left eye. I thought I lost my contact but I didn't. So ultimately, we decided that uh, we would take him to the ER to be evaluated. In the ER, they did a physical exam, including a pretty thorough neurological examination. And at that point, the doctor had come in and said, you know, as far as a any imaging, she didn't feel that it was necessary, but because he was unsteady on his feet, that if we wanted, you know, the option would be a CAT scan. 
So Maureen opted for the CT scan, which fortunately in this case came back normal. The reason you're doing that CAT scan is to make sure there's no blood, there's nothing else bad in there. So the doctor diagnosed Mason with a concussion and discharged them home. But when they got home, she started to get even more worried about Mason. And that's when I sort of noticed that he became hyperactive, agitated, but very anxious, nervous, almost like he had reverted to three-year-olds um, within just a few minutes. So Maureen decided to bring Mason to a different ER, and that's where we met. I reviewed the CT scan from the other hospital. I talked with them. I did a physical exam. And actually, at this time, Mason was acting pretty normal. He was laying in bed. He was watching cartoons and drinking a juice. I agreed that all of the symptoms they had described were part of a concussion. But at that point, I was just really relieved that he was no longer having the erratic behavior and that there was yet another doctor confirming that this is probably just part of a concussion. And so uh, how is Mason doing now? I feel like I'm back to normal. I actually had a game today, but we lost. So I'm getting the impression that you don't even need to black out in order to have a concussion. Uh, that's right. So a lot of people with concussions will have a short period of getting unconscious, but um, they don't have to. And there's also no stars or Tweety Birds uh, flying around in circles around here too. <laughs> that's another misconception. Uh, from the people that brought you uh, being able to get squished like a pancake and still be able to survive. <laughs> so why did Maureen have to go back to the ER a second time? Did something go wrong with her first visit? No, I don't think so. I think the first doctor did an appropriate medical workup, but maybe it just wasn't clear about what to expect after a concussion because sometimes... The symptoms can be delayed in onset. So I totally understand he was acting one way, had one set of symptoms, and then they got home. And as far as she was concerned, everything sort of changed. So these symptoms that he had, the headache, confusion, emotional behavior, they're all part of a concussion. It was just new for her. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, it seems in some ways unavoidable. I mean, like a second ER visit, because well, we don't have kids, Jess. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> but well, if yeah. you do, um, and I don't know about them, I sure would like to. No, know. I mean, but if we had kids, I mean, I think I would bring them back to the ER too. If if our child started acting like that, I mean, even if they warned me that the symptoms would be delayed, I mean, because I've never seen a concussion symptom before, so I would have nothing to base it off of. I mean, it it sounds absolutely frightening. A lot of people will report, and this is especially common in the pediatric age group and kids, uh, they have a waxing and waning where they seem a little bit better and they're totally normal and then they seem a little bit off and then they seem normal. That's been well described. And a lot of people when they're describing that he's confused, they're just describing someone who's out of sorts. They're dazed and they're having a hard time focusing at the dinner table. People are asking them to pass assault and they seem to be staring into space. And if that's the case, is that normal after a head injury, a mild head injury? The answer is yes. It's totally within the realm of what you see and it's not necessarily alarming. It's when the person crosses a certain line, I mean, they're really confused, you know, or they're seeing things, they're having hallucinations or there's any sign of weakness on one side of the body, they can't walk, they can't talk, those become inconsistent 
with simple post-concussive symptoms, and the patients have to be looked at carefully in those cases to make sure there isn't some bleeding in the brain or something specific that needs to be addressed that you could see on a CAT scan, for example. So it's really important. Let's go over that again. I want to review the symptoms of a concussion. So you can get confusion, particularly right at the time of the injury. You can get slurred speech, decreased coordination, emotional ability, (laughs) headaches, and memory problems. But here's the thing. If you've got any concern at all, you should just come to the ear because it can be really difficult to tell the difference between a concussion and something more serious. That's even more important if you haven't had a CAT scan and things change. But that's why we're here. Just come back to the ER. We're here 24-7-365. All right. So are you able to tell me what is the physical damage that's happening with a concussion? I mean, is the is the brain being bruised or is there scar tissue building up that's causing problems? Like really on a microscopic level, what exactly does a concussion look like? So on a microscopic level, it's actually an injury to the axons of the nerve. Those are the tails of the nerve, right? Yeah, it's sort of like the outbox. The dendrite is the inbox. It pulls information in. And the axons, the outbox, sending information back out. Yes, like like uh, the movie Avatar, where they all send messages through their tails by plugging it into weird horses and trees to talk to them. Sure, Dave. It's exactly like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, axons are the tails. They're sending the signal out. And imagine that if there was an injury to the avatar's tail, the information wouldn't be able to be transmitted out normally. And so that would result in some sort of deficit. And that's how you get- Yeah, like, the, the, like their horse eating them accidentally. That'd be a problem. And that would be exactly like the symptom of a concussion. <laughs> Nailed it. Because <laughs> people with concussions often feel the need to eat other animals. <laughs> I must have concussion all the time because I am am a carnivore. (laughs) Hey, well, so now I have a question outside of this. Can you see that axon damage under a microscope? Like if you were to take a slice of somebody's brain... You know, or, actually, I don't know. Maybe I that's think a whole other question. I think it's on a, a much more microscopic level. I think it's more on a cellular and neurotransmitter level. If you were to look at the proteins that are expressed in that nerve cell, it's beyond just looking at a microscope. It's abnormal signal transmission. So if I come into the ER with symptoms of what I guess looks like a concussion, will I just get a CT scan by default? Um, No. When a patient comes into the emergency department, whenever they've had a head injury, we worry about the possibility of something more life-threatening than a concussion. We worry about things like bleeding into your brain, but not everybody needs a CAT scan. So a concussion isn't typically associated with brain bleeds. It's something that could lead to a brain bleed. So Dave, what we're saying is that Almost everybody with a brain bleed has some form of concussion, but not necessarily the other way. Uh, I can hit you on the head right now, Dave, and I don't hit you too hard, but you get concussion and you get all of the symptoms we talked about. But if I hit you really hard, you get all that, plus you start to bleed into your head. And I imagine those two things look very different in the ER. No. (laughs) Well, they can look, that's the point, is that they can look very similar early on. They can look very similar. So the smart ER doc has to determine... Is this just a concussion? Should I get a CAT scan to make sure there's no bleeding? And that's why there's no right answer as to whether you should or shouldn't get a CT scan. It's up to you and the patient. And, you know, it's always individualized. You can't have a blanket statement about when or you should or shouldn't do a CAT scan. 
Dave, did you yeah. know that speaking of imaging the head, did you know that Mel, our very own Dr. Professor Mel Herbert, was one of the authors on a landmark, not just one, but multiple landmark studies about this very subject? Uh, Jess, uh, lovely wife, <laughs> I do. And Mel, I have a copy of the journal right here for autograph. Right Whoa. here. <laughs> that. Yeah, it turns out that I was a tiny, tiny, tiny cog in a very giant wheel that did some really big studies about when you should CAT scan people who get bonked on the head. A tiny, tiny That's cog. That's pretty cool. There's nothing wrong with wheel. that. It's way cool. I'm, I'm cool being a yeah. cog. Hey, without the cog, the clock can't keep time, right? Ah, so. Exactly. How mm-hmm. is an x-ray different than a CAT scan? Uh, well, they're not that different, actually. So... CAT scans or CT scans or computer-assisted tomography is basically a really fancy form of x-rays. So if I do an x-ray, I expose the part of the body to x-rays and then I have a plate behind it and I get an image. And CT scan basically does the same thing, but it has a big giant computer behind it and it shoots multiple uh, cuts of x-rays. And then the smart computer looks at all these different x-ray images and puts them together in two dimensions and now even in three dimensions to give you a much better representation of what's happening inside the person. Oh, so, okay. So an x-ray is like a painting and a CAT scan is like animation. It's it's like taking a bunch of bunch of different stills and like turning into a flip book and animating them. That's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, I like it. Okay. But I'm, I'm, I imagine there's a lot of radiation associated with all those <laughs> right. individual yeah. pictures. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's right. So a single x-ray doesn't really produce much radiation at all, but a CAT scan produces a lot more radiation. That's why we don't want to do it in everybody. Okay, so what's next? You've diagnosed me with a concussion in the ER. Uh, how do you take care of me? You just write me a prescription for some Tylenol and call me in the morning kind of thing? Well, the most important part about treating concussions is rest, and it's both physical rest and cognitive rest, which we call brain rest. Brain rest, yes, okay. Um, So what does that include? So brain rest, what we mean by that is we actually don't want you to be doing a lot of thinking. So activities like homework or even things like playing video games or watching TV, you may not think you're thinking, but you actually are using your brain quite a bit for those activities. And your recovery time is actually shorter if you're just trying to rest your mind. And the best way to do that is staring at a wall or looking out a window. I've always thought these brain rest recommendations were a bit silly. Um, So stare at the wall. Okay. Uh, Watch the grass grow. Uh, Watch the paint dry if the wall is boring. Look at the ceiling. Doesn't make much sense. But here's a real expert with his suggestions. This is Robert Cantu, who is chief of neurosurgery at Boston University School of Medicine. Cognitive rest, which means they shouldn't be doing their schoolwork if they have cognitive symptoms or trying to concentrate exacerbates their symptoms. It's very common that we don't let them take exams initially. We don't let them do prolonged homework assignments. If just going to school, not even taking exams, Um, exacerbate symptoms, we may need to pull them out of school. So it's a trial and error basis. And of course, uh, physical rest. Now that doesn't mean that you lie in bed all day. Uh, You can still walk and do a gentle exercise, but it basically means nothing where you get up and get a good sweat going. No, no, no. And most importantly, 
don't uh, drive a car when you're confused and have blurry vision, please. So before that athlete can go back into uh, their sport, they have to be cleared by a doc or a trainer. And the reason for this is that you really do not want to have a second concussion while you're still symptomatic. Is that a concussion that has to do with the first concussion or is that completely separate? Well, it's not completely separate, but... So let's say that, uh, Dave, you're playing football, you get hit on the head and you get knocked out and then you're confused and um, you've got the symptoms and you have difficulty concentrating and you're getting lots of headaches. And then you decide the next day, I'm going to go play football again. And you get hit in the head again, a second concussion, another episode. Well, that could be really, really bad for you. You're much more susceptible to develop a second concussion because your brain's already kind of in shock. So a second concussion when you're not really recovered from the first one, that's bad. But something that's potentially much worse and maybe even life-threatening is that second head injury causing something called second impact syndrome. And let's talk to Captain Cortex about what that is. The theory behind second impact syndrome is really interesting. It's the notion that after this initial brain injury, this concussion, that the brain is somehow more vulnerable to a second injury, to a subsequent injury, so that even a seemingly minor second bump on the head can have devastating effects, like even fatal effects from brain swelling way beyond what you would expect just from them bumping their head if it wasn't for that previous injury. The problem with this concept is that there are so few reported cases of this actual second impact syndrome in the medical literature. So a lot of people doubt whether it actually exists as a phenomena. It may be that in these few reported cases that those patients really just had a more severe initial injury for example, than what was really appreciated. And so it seemed like that second bump on the head uh, killed them, that type of thing. Okay, so how long does it take typically to recover from a concussion? So the good news is about 90% of people recover in seven to 10 days, but sometimes their symptoms can continue much longer than that. In fact, if they persist for more than three months, it's called post-concussion syndrome. Post-concussion syndrome is really what we call it when the symptoms just aren't going away. It's three months after the initial accident, the injury to the brain, and the patient is still having persistent headaches, irritability, difficulty concentrating, emotional ability. It's just not going away. So I think the way they name these syndromes is really bad. Here's the way I think it should be. You get hit on the head and you start to get these symptoms, you get the headaches, you get the concentration problems. We should call that post-concussion syndrome. And that can last for days and days and days. And then if it lasts for three months or more, I would call that chronic post-concussion syndrome. But they didn't ask me when they went around naming these things, but they should have. I'm just saying they didn't, they should have. You go, Mel, you go. All right, Dave, let's recap. Here wow. is what, what? a pop quiz. Where am I taking you? What is a concussion? Oh my gosh. Um, a, a concussion is a serious form of brain injury caused by a direct hit to the head. Good, yeah. Okay, question number two, what is second impact syndrome? Oh, second impact syndrome. I'm not totally clear what it is, but it sounds like a, con a concussion on top of a concussion that causes brain swelling and death. Genius. Yay me. Okay, so Dave, can you clarify then what is post-concussion syndrome? Okay, post-concussion syndrome is anything lasting after three months, and that's it, right? Yeah, as deemed by societies that name things. Or the Herbert Society calls it chronic concussion syndrome. 
Thank you very much. Patent yeah. it. Write it down right now. You heard it here first. Boom. If they change it in the next time they revise these guidelines, it's course of this won't hurt a bit. I guess this leaves me wondering where things are going with the future of youth sports because some sports are clearly safer than others. And if we know that some sports and activities have higher rates of concussions, will those sports even be around in the future? Or are they just going to wipe them out? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Dave. If you think back in history where we've gone, you know, boxing used to be really, really common. But today, are there many families that would let their kids box? I don't think so. Maybe we need to think about concussions or at least activities that lead to concussions like smoking. Like concussions is the new smoking. Would you let your kid smoke? I wouldn't. Would I let my kid play a sport where they're very likely to get concussions? I wouldn't. Now, when your kid becomes an adult, okay, they get to choose. They get to weigh the risks and benefits. But I wouldn't let my kid smoke. And frankly, I wouldn't let my kid do any activity where there was a high likelihood of getting a concussion. Just wouldn't do it. Their brain. It's too important need that thing for a long time. But remember that while football does have the highest rate of concussions of any other high school sport, the activity that's the most common activity kids are doing when they get a concussion overall is riding a bike. And I don't think we're going to be taking bicycles away from kids. And that's why kids, you should wear your helmet on your bicycle. And adults, you too. So in the end, if you're going to play a particular sport or let your kids play a particular sport or do a particular activity, you know, it's up to you. But you have to weigh the risks and the benefits. And I think we've only just now begun to understand just how risky a concussion is, and particularly multiple concussions over time. It really is associated with some pretty serious consequences. So have fun, do your activities, but just put that into the algorithm of deciding whether you should or shouldn't do it. And although nobody can predict the future, our former football player, Steve Yates, has some ideas. 20 years from now, I honestly don't know if it would be even legal to play football anymore, honestly. Well, thanks to Dr. Tom Waters, to Stephen Yates, to Maureen and Mason Nagel, and to Dr. Stuart Swadron, Captain Cortex himself, and my med school mentor. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from him. And thanks to Dr. Robert Cantu, Chief of Neurosurgery at Boston University. This episode was produced by Cece Herbert and Bill Connor. Sound designed by Bill Connor. Music was thanks to Matt Eccles. I'm Dr. Mel Herbert. And I'm Dr. Jess Mason. And I'm Mr. David Mason, the second Esquire Jr. Esquire. <laughs> I knew you were going there. This Won't Hurt a Bit is a production of Foolyboo Incorporated. The information you hear on This Won't Hurt a Bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So, be sensible and keep it real. And this, oh this. 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 This.